Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Dr. Robert Smith Jr. and I are here to introduce you to a sermon from a voice that really dominated, I would say, the mainline Protestant pulpit in this country for much of the 20th century, mm-hmm. Harry Emerson Fosdick. Fosdick was actually born in the 19th century, in 1878. That's he died correct. in 1969. He's best known for his many years as the pastor of Riverside Church in New York City. Tell us how we're going to hear from Harry Emerson Fosdick. Fosdick is dealing with handling life's second best, and he chooses for text Acts chapter 16. Of course, what he wants to do is to show how Paul desired to take the gospel to Bithynia, and God said no through the Spirit, and he has to go to Troas. What he's about, Dean, as you so well know, is metaphorizing Bithynia Mm. and saying that everyone has a Bithynia. A first choice. And when that first choice is not one in which one is able to fulfill, that God can turn the first choice into the second choice in order to accomplish his purpose. So when Paul, of course, does not get Bithynia, he gets Troas. And it is from Troas that the gospel goes into Europe. And uh, that's what Fosdick is, is about, that God can take what seems to be apparent failures and first efforts and choose to use them for his glory. One great example, I'm glad he does this. He does, as you know, uh, present his messages eclectically uh, from history, from artistry, from the theater. But he treats um, the story of Joseph and shows how Joseph was sold into slavery and God used Joseph down into Egypt to be the vice regent there. And it is through Joseph that the Pharaoh's dream is interpreted. Food uh, is saved, not only for the Egyptians, but for his family. His family does not die out. And Joseph is able to say, what you meant to me for evil, God meant to me for good. I think this is a message that applies to Christians and for them to take hope and say, yes, I know this didn't work out. And there was a dead end here. But God has taken that which seemed to be all for naught and used it for his glory and purpose. This was preached, this sermon was preached in 1944, right right. in the middle of World War II. And, of course, he's applying that to many of the people in the service who were coming back to this country or others who had lost loved ones. Your first choice didn't work out. You didn't get Bithynia. But God has a Troas for you. Wow. So it's a powerful sermon. Wow. Now, we we have to say a word because Fosdick is known, of course, for his role in the fundamentalist modernist That's controversy. Correct. That's correct. And actually for denying things like the virgin birth exactly. of Jesus and so forth. Why are we listening to him? Well, you know, St. Augustine talked about the children of Israel stealing the golden vessels from the Babylonians and bringing them back to build the temple. So we're going to steal a little bit of gold here from Dr. Fosdick. It's not his. Uh, If there's gospel in it anywhere, if there's Bible in it anywhere, we can claim it. So we're going to listen to Dr. Fosdick and learn something from him, even though, you know, we wouldn't hire him to teach here at Beeson Divinity School. So listen to this sermon. You're going to be blessed by this sermon, I think. Handling Life's Second Best by Harry Emerson Fosdick. Even in ordinary times... 
A few persons have a chance to live their lives on the basis of their first choice. Whistler, the artist, for example, started out to be a soldier and failed at West Point because he could not pass in chemistry. He used to say, if silicon had been a gas, I should have been a major general. So failing in his first choice, he half-heartedly tried engineering and then tried painting with such remarkable results as the whole world knows. Even ordinary life is full of this problem, having to do the best we can with our second and third choices. But in these days, who escapes it? This ghastly era is no first choice of ours as an age to live in. And as for our individual fortunes, think of these millions of young men and women whose first choices have been scrapped now and whose task is and will be somehow to make something out of their second and third bests. <clears throat> A natural starting point for our thought about this matter is found in the 16th chapter of the Book of the Acts, where in the record of Paul's journeys we read this. When they were come over against Mysia, they assayed to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus suffered them not. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There was a man of Macedonia standing, beseeching him and saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision straightway, we sought to go forth into Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel unto them. Now, so brief and simple is this narrative, one would hardly guess that it describes one of the most significant events in all history. For here, by way of Troas and Macedonia, Christianity passed over from Asia into Europe. That was a tremendous event. But so the story runs, Paul had not planned that. He had not intended to go to Europe. That was a second choice. Paul had planned to go to Bithynia. And no wonder for Bithynia was one of the richest provinces of Asia Minor, and to have carried Christianity there would have been a triumph indeed. <laughs> Moreover, we may be sure that if Paul wanted to go to Bithynia, he wanted to go very much, for Paul was never a halfway man, and he could not go 
The way was blocked. His plan was broken. Undoubtedly, it seemed to Paul most deplorable. One pictures him arriving there on the shores of the Aegean, saying, alas, I wanted to go to Bithynia, and here I am in Troas. But lo, through Troas, a way opened to the preeminent ministry of his career. Paul carried Christianity into Europe, rendering his most significant service with the leftovers of a broken plan. Well, wanting Bithynia and getting Troas is a familiar experience. But to take Troas, the second best, the broken plan, the remnant of a disappointed expectation, and make of it our greatest opportunity how much less familiar that is. Yet powerful living has always involved this victory Paul won in Troas over his own soul and his situation. When a great career has at last been finished and the halo of well-deserved reputation hangs over it so that one cannot think the name without thinking of some high enterprise with which the name is associated, then in the glamour of that retrospect, we're tempted to forget that almost always, back there somewhere, the turning point of the career was the experience that Paul had getting Troas when he wanted Bithynia. The name Phillips Brooks means to us a powerful spiritual ministry. Of all the letters that Phillips Brooks received, it said that he cherished most this one from a small tailor shop near Copley Square in Boston. Dear Dr. Brooks, I'm a tailor in a little shop near your church. Whenever I have the opportunity, I always go to hear you preach. And each time I hear you preach, I seem to forget all about you, for you make me think of God. Nevertheless, remember that Phillips Brooks did not plan to be a preacher. That was a second choice. He planned to be a teacher. That was his Bithynia. Graduating from college, he plunged into his chosen profession of teaching, and he failed. He failed completely. Listen to young Brooks writing about his scholars as he is in the process of failing. They are the most disagreeable set of creatures without exception that I have ever met with. I really am ashamed of it, but I'm tired, cross, and almost dead. So good night. Listen to Phillips Brooks after he had failed and been dropped from his position. 
I don't know what will become of me, and I don't care much. Listen to Phillips Brooks' father, concerned about his son, so humiliated that he will not talk even with his friends. Phillips will not see anyone now, but after he's over the feeling of mortification, he will come and see you. Well, in a sense, Phillips Brooks never recovered from the disappointment. In the flower of his career, he came down once from the office of President Eliot of Harvard, trembling and white as a sheep, because he had declined a professorship at Harvard, which he knew was his last opportunity to be a teacher. He wanted Bithynia, and he got Troas. But through Troas, he found an open door into a service that if he had lived a hundred lives, he might never have found again. Who here has not faced or does not face now the need for that kind of spiritual victory? Who of us has not upon his heart some young man or woman in whose life everything depends on the ability to make something worthwhile out of Troas? So this morning, we ask what it was in Paul that enabled him to turn his grievous disappointment into such notable achievements. Certainly, for one thing, his religion entered in. Whatever else was shaken when he got to Troas, his conviction still was there that God had a purpose for his life. That if God led him to Troas, there must be something in Troas worth discovering that God's purposes include Troas just as much as Bithynia, and that God never leads any man into any place where all the doors are shut. Paul's religion entered in. Indeed, it is in just such situations that one can tell how much real religion a man has. We hear a man reciting a familiar creed like, uh, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. But no matter how serious he may be about it, one cannot tell from that alone how real it is to him. When, however, a man who wanting Bithynia gets Troas, and still certain that there is a purpose for his life, takes a positive attitude toward Troas, as though to say, if God has led me here, then there is something worthwhile here to do. You know that that man's religion is practically operative. 
If therefore Paul had merely said what he did say, to them that love God, all things work together for good. We might have cocked suspicious eyebrows at him, thinking that that proposition is extraordinarily difficult to prove as it is. For them that love God, all things work together for good. My soul, as a matter of theory, I'd like to see a man who could prove that to me. What's impressive about Paul is that whenever he did land in a disappointing Troas, and he landed in a lot of them, he did so effectually love God that he made all things work together for good. He lived it out. That's a vital fact, my friends, endlessly repeated in great biography. A man's religion can mean to him a positive faith about life and a positive attitude toward life so effective that watching his career is again and again like watching the Battle of Marengo in the morning, an obvious defeat in the afternoon, a resounding victory. Consider a modern counterpart of Paul, Adoniram Judson. When Judson was a young man, he gave himself to missionary service, and his ambition centered on India. That was his Bithynian. When at last he reached India, the East India Company would, him let, would not let him in. And the governor told him to take the first ship back to America. For a year, he tried to open the doors of India, and they were bolted shut. So he turned to Burma. That was his Troas, unknown, untouched, Burma. Now, do you suppose that through all that disappointment, Judson could always see the leadership of God? Of course he could not. He was human. Do you suppose that during those months he lay in the prison of the emperor at Ava and Upengla, he could always see the evidences of the divine purpose. Of course he could not, but he did so handle the affair in Burma. His second choice, the doors began to open until no well-instructed man today can think of Burma without thinking of Adoniram Judson. And when we read the stirring story of Dr. Gordon's sea grave in Burma in these recent years, we know that he and his fellows are there and will be there after this war is over because of the victory that Judson won at his Troas.
At first, he hated the idea of going to Burma. In the end, he said, I would not leave my present situation to be made king. My friends, to live life through, not argue it through, that never is enough. To live life through, into the conviction that there is no disappointing Troas a man can land in without a divine purpose there with which he can ally himself and make something worthwhile out of it is one of the finest achievements of the human spirit. Indeed, one of the most thrilling stories in the Old Testament is on this very theme. One day in Palestine, we stopped our automobile by the roadside and ate our lunch at Dotham, where long ago Joseph had been sold into slavery by his brethren. Still the ancient camel trail goes up from Jordan across the Judean Ridge and then runs down to the coast cities and so to Egypt. Now that boy Joseph, stolen from his home, betrayed by his brethren, dropped into a pit, sold to Midianite slave dealers, made a man-servant in a household in Egypt, lied about by his master's wife and put in prison. Do you suppose that during all that humiliation and disgrace he could see where God was taking him? Of course not. But he so kept his faith and handled his life that the doors opened into the biggest business of his career, service he never could have rendered had he stayed back in Canaan. And when at last those penitent and frightened brethren stood before him, you remember what he said to them. I am Joseph, your brother, whom ye sold into Egypt. And now be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that ye sold me hither. For God did send me before you to preserve life. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. My word, I suppose that's what Shakespeare meant when he said, there is a soul of goodness in things evil. Would men observingly distill it out? At any rate, Paul felt so, as afterwards he looked back on that day when he missed Bithynia and got Troas. At first he called it hard luck. But in the end, he said to hard luck, It was not you that sent me hither, but God. In the second place, it was not simply Paul's religion 
that enabled him to win this victory, but the fine fruit of his religion, his care about people. The trouble with so many of us when we land in Troas is that we begin to pity ourselves. Paul could have done that easily. He could have started the process we indulge in, that is, ifing, if I had not missed Bithynia, if my plans had not been broken, if I could have had my first choice, if, if I have given up everything for Christ, Paul might have said, I could today be one of the great rabbis of Jerusalem, saluted in the marketplace, and I've given it up for Christ. I spent a long time in Arabia thinking through the gospel. I've been 14 years in a little, trying, difficult, unrecognized ministry in Cilicia, at odds even with my Christian brethren, because once I persecuted them. And now, when I'm just beginning to get on a good fifth footing with my fellow Christians, with Barnabas and a few others trusting me, I come up through Asia Minor on a preaching mission. <laughs> See what they've done to me. They stoned me and left me for dead at Lystra. Even after that, all I asked was, that I might have a chance to get into Bithynia and do some good work. And now I cannot. I'm foiled. My plan is broken. <laughs> How easy it would have been for Paul in Troas to have felt exceedingly sorry for himself. Upon the contrary, he at once began thinking about other people. Might not someone be better off just because he had landed in Troas? He had not been there a night before he saw a man from Macedonia saying, come over, come over and help us. That was the kind of person Paul was. He would see the man from Macedonia. Most of us wouldn't, but he would. It was Paul's unselfishness, his generosity, his magnanimity that opened the doors for him in Troas. Once there was a man named William Duncan who gave himself to the missionary cause and in time was sent by his board to a little Indian village in Alaska called Metlakatla. One thinks of that neck of the woods just now because some of our sons are there. It was an unlikely troas for a young man to land in who had doubtless dreamed of some much more attractive Bithynia for those Indians were a poor, ignorant, miserable tribe, and their morals vile beyond description. Dean Brown of Yale, however, who visited Metlakatla after William Duncan had been there 40 years, makes this report. 
that you will find every Indian family in a separate house with all the decent appointments of home life, that you will find a bank, a cooperative store, a sawmill, a box factory, and a salmon cannery run by Indians in profitable industry, that you'll find a school where Indian boys and girls learn to read and write and think and live, and a church where an Indian minister preaches the gospel of eternal life and an Indian musician who once was a medicine man playing a tom-tom now plays a pipe organ. And the congregation of Indians sing the great hymns of the church to the praise of Almighty God, all because a man named William Duncan, landing in Troas, cared enough about people to find there the chance of his life. My friends, that spirit and its consequence can be transferred to our lives. It had better be. We're all in Troas, just as at Sebastopol each heart thought a different name. While they all sang Annie Laurie, so when today we say Troas, each of us thinks of some situation we're in now we never would have planned to be in. There's only one way out. Was it not George MacDonald who said, Nothing makes a man strong like a cry for help. You walk down the street utterly fatigued, so tired that you'd like to lie down on the curb and go to sleep. And suddenly, there's a cry. There's been an accident. A child is hurt. And you never remember how tired you are until it's all over. Nothing makes a man strong like a cry for help. A mother is completely fatigued. She's been telling her friends for weeks that there's nothing more left in her. And then a child falls ill and needs her, and week after week she stands by and forgets she's tired. Nothing makes one strong like a call for help. Many of us now hate this troas of a bloody generation we're in, but we are awake, too, to the dangers of our civilization, to the possibility of losing it, to the critical need of a new world order if this is to be a decent earth for children to be born into. And that's our strength. Our man from Macedonia crying, come over, come over and help us. This then is the conclusion of the matter. Because Paul had these two elements in his life, a practical working religion and a generous willingness to answer a call for help, as soon as he landed in Troas, his imagination was filled not with disappointment and defeat, but with victory. 
Kuei was right when he said that it's the imagination that makes or unmakes most of us. If you put a 30-foot plank on the ground, anyone can walk it. But if you put it up six stories, almost nobody can walk it. Not because the physical difficulties are greater, but because one's imagination keeps picturing one falling off. So when we get into Troas, we imagine ourselves defeated. I wanted Bithynia, we say. I've got Troas. So we think defeat. We say defeat. We picture defeat. We are defeated. But as soon as Paul landed in Troas, he saw God opening a new door. And he heard a man calling for help. If you were to ask what it was that helped Paul most in that crisis, I suspect that his thought went back, as it so habitually did, to the cross of his master. That was a Troas to land on. What a Bithynia it would have been if his people had welcomed and accepted him as their Messiah. And now, shut out from that Bithynia, he came to his Troas, his Calvary. Take a good look, my friends, at what our Lord did with his Troas. All the light of sacred story gathers round its head sublime. Let us pray. Eternal Spirit, thou seest that what we have talked about this morning is not so much something to be talked about but to be lived. So now we want to live it because we desperately need it, every one of us. Come to us where we are now, each in his or her own private, intimate, individual Troas. Show us that open door. Unstop our ears that we may hear that call for help. Amen. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. 
We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.